You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity & Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with David Tan. David is the founder of Tantrum Agency here in Atlanta, Georgia. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. I'm David Tan, the founder and CEO of Tantrum Agency, uh, located in Atlanta, Georgia. We are a boutique brand and design consultancy I call it creative consulting. So I think, you know, for us, it's really more about the journey of in the process of creating whatever it is, uh, less so the actual physical output. So, you know, I like the process of working with people. And, and I think that's what we do really, really well. That's the part of my job that I love the most. Well, before we, you know, really kind of start off with the interview, I just have to congratulate you on your recent honor. Oh, man, I appreciate that. Entrepreneur of the Year from Atlanta <laughs> Business League. Yeah, that's a that's a big one, man. Like, you know, I never in a, a million years would I thought that that one would come across, you know, the desk. But, you know, when it did, I definitely am super, super humbled. There's a lot of titans in the uh, the history of Atlanta who won that award. So um, I definitely am super humbled and, and honored to receive that one. Yeah, man, you should really be proud of that. Congratulations. Appreciate it. Aside from that, like how has 2023 been going so far? Man, 2023 has been, I mean, we're really blessed. Like it's, it's a record year as far as uh, projects and revenue. I think we, you know, we're continuing to grow. And so, you know, the first quarter, first half of the year has been amazing. So, you know, if the second half lives up to the first, it'll, you know, it'll be another uh, record-breaking year for us. I mean, aside from the the record-breaking parts that you mentioned, like how are things different for you this year than last year? I think it's a lot different for us, less probably so from the outside looking in, but more we just have more systems in place. And, you know, it's taken a while to kind of get the team, the right people on the team and have the right people in the right roles. And, and so... 2023 feels different than 2022 or any of the years prior, just because it's like, we actually have a a solid team in place. There's a lot of things that I used to have to do that I don't have to do anymore. 
you know, that's a really, really good feeling. That means that we're growing and, you know, we're moving in the right direction. Any plans for the summer? Summer's always my busy season, man. I think it comes from, you know, my background in retail where in the summer you're really ramping up for holiday. My summers are always in a weird way. Everyone else is going on vacation and, you know, I'll sneak a vacation a couple days in here or there when I can, but usually that's, you know, I'm ramping up. We're pushing pretty hard in the summertime. Nice. Let's talk about Tantrum, which turns five this year, right? Yeah, we just turned five in February. So we're a little over five now heading into the sixth year. So that's a huge one because, you know, most businesses obviously don't make it that far. So, you know, we feel really fortunate and blessed and thankful to get to that point. Nice. Tell me more about it. I mean, you've kind of made a little bit of mention about the team structure, but but talk to me more about Tantrum. You know, I started 2018 in my basement just with this idea, you know, something that I had always wanted to do. And the timing of it was never right. And after years in the industry, it was just like, all right, family's good. Kids are a little bit older. I have all this experience. And, you know, I was in, I'm a firm believer in like mental health and therapy. And I talked to my therapist and she's like, you know, what are you waiting for? And um, talked to my wife about it. And she was like, you've let me be at home with my kid, with the kids and, and be a stay at home mom for 10 years and like now go chase it. And so, that was like the battery charge that I needed to kind of go out and do it. And I thought worst case scenario, it's a six month sabbatical. And then I just go back and get another job. And here we are five and a half years later, still going strong. And as far as the agency goes, we do all different types of work. So I say we're kind of industry agnostic. We're everywhere from education to civil engineering, to healthcare sports and entertainment. We cross a variety of industries, but I think the thing that is sort of the common thread is, you know, we have clients that really believe in what they're doing and are passionate about the work that they do. And they're willing to go on that creative journey with us. And so we've got some really cool clients that cross a bunch of different industries and we've done a bunch of uh, pretty cool projects. And so As an agency, I think that's kind of the thing that I'm the most proud of is the diversity of the type of work that we do. Hmm. What are some recent projects uh, that you've worked on? Yeah, so one that I tell people that's just easy for people to see because it's just easy is like, you know, we rebranded the Atlanta Dream about three years ago. So if you look at any of their marks Hmm. and colors that came from our team, you know, three years ago due to the close ties and relationships that we have with the NBA. So that's an easy one. The one that's really cool that we just did is we rebranded a, a organization called, was formerly called Equity. It's now called Beam. They're in the cash assistance and aid, government aid space. And so it's a tech company that helps people get cash assistance quickly and equitably. And so we rebranded them, did their website, and then we just did a big trade show booth for them at the city summit of the Americas in Denver. And that was a big one that we're really proud of just because it's very comprehensive and got to show it got to show like all the different skills and abilities that we offer. So that's a very different end of the spectrum. And then, you know, as far as the you mentioned the Atlanta Business League, the day after I won the award for the Atlanta Business League, I was on the road going up to Charlotte to go speak to some high school kids. And we actually have curriculum in Charlotte for digital marketing. And we're rolling out curriculum for sports marketing in the fall. So 
I think those shows like such a diaspora, the t- types of stuff that we do, but those are, you know, three good ones that I think I'm really proud of. I think it's really easy to get kind of caught up in some of the, what I call sexier projects, but the ones that I find the most challenging or the most rewarding are the ones that you don't expect. So, you know, we worked on a brand called Genesis Health, which is a healthcare insurance company a year ago. And it's like, how do you make healthcare and insurance sexy? And it's like, we found a way to do it. And it was cool. You know, so like, those mm-hmm. are the things that I like, because I think that's the challenge of, of what we do from a creative standpoint. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned the, I don't know, the the sexiness <laughs> of projects, because, you know, I think when, particularly when designers are either looking to strike out on their own or they're, they're at the very least trying to like establish themselves as a brand, there's so much social proof wrapped up in doing work for very well-known brands, because it just, it sounds good. Like, if you look at your resume and it says you've done you know, Nike and Sony and all this kind of stuff. It's great. But as you've intimated, the true metal of like a designer is like, how do you sort of take the skills that you have and apply it to non-sexy type of things? You know, like how do you make insurance sexy? How do you make healthcare sexy? And I mean, sexy, of course, is a is a subjective kind of feeling, but like, how do you make it so it's interesting to people and that it still sort of puts forth what the business wants in terms of goals for working with the agency? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, I think that that's just fundamental to kind of what we do. You know, I tell people all the time, like, design is not art, you know, and if you're an artist, you get to create from within, and you get to create because something moves you as a person. If you're a designer, like, I'm not doing anything until someone comes to me with their problem. So everything I do should be solving their problem. So to me, I think that's sort of fundamental to what we do as professionals is like at the end of the day, like all this other stuff is cool and it maybe gets a lot of attention and hits from a media standpoint. But when, you know, this small business or medium sized business or even to some degree, large corporation comes in with a problem and they don't know how to articulate themselves or they can't reach their customer in the right way, then like, okay, cool. I got you. Like that gets to show off a whole other skill set. And I think that that sort of separates you know, that's where, you know, that's when you sort of begin to kind of level up and separate yourself from the pack and, and what others are doing. And to me, that's, you know, kind of what I've made my my career on. And I think that's the part that I'm the most proud of. Has business changed over the past few years? Like just given the state of the world, have have you found that there's been a shift in like the types of clients that you do or the types of work that you do? Well, I think it's changed for us, but it has less to do with like the state of the world and more to do with just, you know, we're growing, you know. And so just that being a young business, being a young entrepreneur, starting, being a couple years into it, you know, and leveraging those personal relationships, you generally are starting off with a small project here just to kind of get your foot in the door and show what you can do. And then you do a good job on that. And then someone's telling someone else and then someone's telling someone else. And so our business has changed and our products have evolved, not so much because of what's happening in the world, just because we're older, more mature, more savvy. We know more what we're doing. We're more confident who we are. And so we're going after bigger projects that have larger scope, longer lead times, bigger budgets, et cetera. So to me, that's just the natural progression of us being in business over time, less so kind of what's happening with, with the world and the market. I mean, we're aware of it. And we obviously pay attention to it, but mm-hmm. I've just learned, especially being an entrepreneur, there's a, there's certain things that's like you can control and there's certain things that you can't control. And 
you know, the external forces of the market and the world, I'll never be able to control that. So, you know, we try to keep our head down and make sure we're serving our clients to the best of our ability and, and let the chips fall where they may. Now, as you know, founder and CEO of the agency, are you still able to kind of get hands on and working with clients? Yes and no. I think the funny part about it is like we do creative reviews on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I was just telling my team the other day, you know, I actually am really excited about the fact that I could be in a creative review and the team could show me something or be talking about a project and I have no idea or they have to get me up to speed on what's happening with that client and what that project is. And I think part of you know, being a leader is putting good people in place and learning to let go and let them do with it what you've hired them to do. So to me, I love that aspect of it. But at the same time, I'm always going to be involved. I'm always going to know at a high level what's going on and make sure that, you know, the ship's heading in the right direction. And even if I'm not necessarily always meeting directly with the client, they know that I've been involved in that process. And to me, that's very important where you know, sometimes even if someone is emailing and it's not me, we've had a conversation about it and they can say, you know, I talked to David, this is kind of what we're doing. This is the thought process, um, et cetera, even if I'm not in, in every call, on every meeting, et cetera. Mm. Are there like particular types of clients that you would say like the agency is best to work with? Like I know you mentioned these, you know, sort of larger brands like the Atlanta Dream, et cetera, but is there like a specific category or type that you find sort of the agency gravitates towards in terms of business? I think it's less about industry. And, and to some degree, it's actually size is less of a concern. too. we do a lot of work with startups and, you know, we do a lot of work with small businesses. And I think that it's just part of what I kind of consider to be goodwill is that, you know, we have a skill, we have a service. And for the most part, you know, those young entrepreneurs or startups or whatever, they may not be able to afford our services. So, we carve out a couple projects a year where we do them at discounted rates or some of them, depending on what it is, we might even do pro bono. We can't obviously do a ton of them because, you know, we're a business and we have to keep the lights on. But I do think it's important to keep connected and make sure that some of those small businesses, because I'm a small business myself, that we don't forget about them and, and leave those behind. So we're working on all different types and, and sizes of companies. I think the thing that is sort of unique regardless of where they are is like, you know, I like working with people who feel like they have something approved. I like the underdog. I like, I think everyone on our team has a chip on their shoulder. Like we're a small agency and we're trying to compete with the agencies that have been around for 40, 50 years. So from a client standpoint, the best clients are the ones that, you know, aren't afraid to take risks. The best clients are the ones that, you know, again, aren't afraid to go on that creative journey. And they're not just asking me for an output, you know, I want a logo. Like if you're just focusing on that output or that end result, it's probably not the best scenario for us because generally speaking, we know where we're, where we need to head, but we're going to push you and poke and prod so that when we get to that end result, we're delivering the highest quality, telling the story in the best way, et cetera. And for people who kind of want to shortcut that process or cut those steps out of the process, those end up not being ideal clients for us. So it's less about the size and scale and more just about the mentality and the approach to the project. Mm -hmm. So like say a new project comes into the agency, like walk me through that. Like what's the intake process look like? What does the 
the creative process look like for working on the project? Like, tell me about that. Yeah. So generally speaking, so in five years, we've only had one client come off the street. So Hmm. everything has been word of mouth. So so generally there's some sort of a referral or some sort of a connection to a project that's coming into the agency. So once we kind of get beyond those initial interactions, connections, as far as establishing the relationship or how they were referred to us, and we start talking about the project just at a high level. I mean, if you want all the steps, it's just Starting about the project, we'll initially do some sort of a touch base meeting to just sort of understand what are they trying to achieve and kind of what their plan to scope it, the project. And if they have all that stuff figured out, then they can send us the scope. If not, then we'll go back based off of our notes and we'll try to create some sort of a rough version of what we think the scope would be. Then we're doing our you know typical statement of work, agreeing to the terms of the contract. That can go back and forth for a little bit, just depending on you know who they are or what the specific needs are. Once all the contracts are signed and the, the paperwork is done, then we'll have a formal kickoff. Because in many of the times, like I'm already talking with the client, so I have an idea what they want, but my team hasn't been involved in that process. So I like to start from square one and pretend like I know nothing. My team knows nothing. And we start walking through that process of kind of who they are, what they're trying to achieve, why they feel like they need to do this project, whatever it may be, et cetera. And I, I step back and I let my team ask questions. From there, we do our own discovery. So we'll do our own research, regardless of whatever research the client has done. And we are looking at sort of the company as a whole. We're looking at uh, the market. We're looking at competitors. We're looking across industries. Sometimes clients think that their problems are unique, but it's like it's really not that unique if you look across a different industry or can find something or a client or a company in a similar situation. So we're, we're doing all that research. From a creative standpoint, we might put together some mood boards and we do a little exercise where we're talking with the client, trying to understand what they like or what they love and what they hate. I don't really care about anything that's in between. That's sort of vanilla I only care about the things that move them one way or another because we're trying to figure out how far we can push them where the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. Um, if we know that they hate orange, then it doesn't make sense for us to show any concepts that have orange in it. You know what I mean? So we can already cut that process. We can cut those mistakes out just by asking simple questions up front. So once we do that initial sort of creative, hey, touch back or touch base, like, hey, this is what you said. This is what we heard. This is our research. Here's a couple of rough ideas that we have. You know, what are you interested in? Then we'll start the creative process. And generally, we try to nail it, you know, coming out the gate. But generally, two rounds, you know, three rounds tops. And after that, I mean, we're, we're rocking and rolling. So once we get the approval, then we move into production mode and just start, you know, knocking out all the assets. I mean, sounds like the process is pretty kind of straightforward. I mean, the process in and of itself is straightforward. The thing that you kind of run into is like the companies and who we're dealing with and the approval process. That's not straightforward. So in some instances, we have to, we can rebrand a company in four months. In other instances, it's taken us three years, you know, and it's like, it's not that our process is changing. It's just that the number of people involved, the approvals, sometimes we're peeling back layers to the onion as far as the company goes and you peel back one layer, which makes you think about something else differently. And so it just kind of goes on and on. So 
our process is pretty pretty standard and and pretty baked, but you know what we uncover throughout that process can lead us down a whole other direction. And I'd say it's probably also just a testament to the team as well, like your team being able to work with the client through that process. You know, I like that part you said about knowing sort of the boundaries, like knowing how far to push them because sometimes the client will will know what they want in terms of like the the output or the end result. And sometimes it uncovers itself, you know, through those conversations and brand explorations and stuff like that. It can come out in a different way. And then it's about knowing whether or not the client is okay with that, like how far you can sort of push things creatively. You know, it's a challenge. Yeah, it definitely is a challenge. But I think that's the part of my job. That's the the fun. Like that's the part that's the most rewarding. And so to, to take something that maybe someone didn't believe in or maybe something someone couldn't see and to sort of walk them through that process. And I think at the end of the day, like if we're doing this job right, we're educators too. And so part of what we're doing is like we might know where we need to go, but we have to slowly but surely educate the client and build confidence within them to understand why this rebrand is important or why we need to say it this way or why we're shifting the colors this way or whatever we have to educate them. And so sometimes that takes time. And I think that that's like, that's the fun part because once the light bulb goes off and they get it, then it's like, it's a game changer. Yeah. What's your favorite project that you've worked on? Oh man. <laughs> I mean, it's a super, <laughs> it's a super cliche answer, but I don't have one. Like to me, it's like the next project is the favorite project, mm. you know? Cause it's like, I'm competitive, man. I'm a little bit different in the sense that, you know, I, was an athlete as a kid. And so I just always have that competitive nature in me as a creative is like, we had a a client reference another project that we did for another client. So we're working with them like, Hey, I really love this website that you did for, you know, so-and-so. I'm like, man, forget that website. We did it. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like we want to be better than that. Like we don't want to we're trying to raise the bar in ourselves. And so to me, it's like whatever the next thing is, is like my opportunity to prove that that the first the thing before it wasn't a flute. And this is really what we do. So so to me, whatever products we did in the past, those were cool. And I'm proud of them. You know what I mean? But the next one is the one where I'm like, all right, I'm going to show you. And that's just my mentality. That's just the way it's always been. Well, let's kind of switch gears here a little bit since you kind of talked a little bit about you know, you as a kid, like, tell me about, uh, about where you grew up. Yeah. So I'm from Kennesaw, Georgia. So okay. for those who are familiar with the Metro Atlanta area, Kennesaw is about 45 minutes North of the city. And now it's very much considered part of Metro Atlanta. When I was growing up, it was country, you know what I mean? So like <laughs> my high school had cows. I drove past the farm every day on the way to high school. So, you know, now it's a skateboard park. You know, but yeah. <laughs> but when I was growing up, my my exit was a Waffle House, a Texaco gas station, and you know Kennesaw College. It wasn't even a university at the time, so it was those were the only two things or three things that were on my exit. Mm. No, and, and I, so I think that that framed a lot of sort of you know me growing up as a kid. Like you know, I think the other piece of it too, and I talked about this a little bit in my Atlanta Business League acceptance speech is, you know, because I grew up in the country and my, you know, parents worked, like I had a nanny growing up and she was an elderly lady 
She was a former educator in Cobb County. Her name was uh, Jessie Mae Taylor. And she took care of me from the time that I was nine months old until she passed away when I was nine years old. She took in foster kids. So she would babysit us during the day, but she also would take in foster kids. So I would see these kids come in and out of the system on a daily, weekly basis. And you like these kids were, were my friends and I played with them and like they had really tough family environments. And I think it very much molded our view of like, this is why we get back. This is why we feel the need to go talk to kids in Charlotte. This is why we feel the need to do the stuff that we do for minority owned, women owned businesses, et cetera, because we have a, a bigger purpose outside of the creative is like the business needs to be a community asset. So mm-hmm. I think that frames a lot as far as me personally, you know, I grew up playing sports, football, baseball, basketball. I was decent as a kid. I wrote a lot. So like, I think that's how I express my creativity, but I can't draw to this day. So stick figure circles, lines, squares, triangles. <laughs> that's how I, you know, sketch my ideas. But I was the kid that, like, I was always rearranging my room. You know, you'd come in one day, the bed is on this wall, blah, blah, blah. The nexus moved here, the nexus there. And, you know, that's just, I would say that's how I expressed my creativity was writing through pen and that. But I didn't, at that time, late 90s, people weren't really talking about design like that. So I didn't really know that this could be a career. So... I just kind of stumbled upon this, you know, in grad school. Mm. Well, let's talk about college. You ended up going to Wake Forest University. You majored in communication. Like, tell me about what your time was like there. Yeah. So Wake was pivotal, man. Like, I think prior to getting to Wake, I had a high school teacher who did a public speaking class. And so I loved that class because she just she allowed us to be fun and, and free. And so that dictated what I majored in when I went to wait. And because I had so much fun in that high school class, I was like, all right, I'll major in communication because I kind of have an idea of what that's about. So, you know, major in communication, again, uh, you know, I was a decent writer. So that helped sort of craft that, that experience of being able to express ideas through written word, but also communicate with people, whether it's public speaking, small groups, et cetera. So I think that helped a lot professionally. I think the environment at Wake, with it being such a small school, and, you know, I ended up pledging Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, and, like, I was the guy that would make our flyers for events. In hindsight, they were horrible, because this is, again, late 90s, and... (laughs) You know, Photoshop wasn't a household thing. So I'm making flyers with like in Microsoft Publisher with clip art and like these horrible default fonts. And, you know, I think that they're dope, but I go back and look at them now. I was like, what was I doing? But I think that that was sort of the beginning of me working in, you know, the graphic arts was just beginning to get that taste of it. And so that was really, I would say the two biggest things is just that communication degree, and then also the fraternity events, flyers, et cetera. So once I graduated from Wake, I remember going to a career fair prior to graduation and like seeing all the businesses that were in there. It's like, you know, I don't want to do any of this. None of this feels right for me. And in the corner tucked away was a 
small table for this school called the Portfolio Center, mm. which is now the Miami Ad School at Portfolio Center. But it was called the Portfolio Center at the time. And they were just like, we're a creative school, you know, like come here for two years and be creative. And I remember telling my mom about it. And once I came home on like a summer break or I can't remember exactly what it was, I took her over to the school and walked in the door with her. Mm -hmm. And she knew right away. She was like, yeah, this is where you need to be. (laughs) And so I enrolled. And, And because like, again, I didn't know what design was. I enrolled as a writer. And mm. so I grew up, like I said, as an athlete. And to this day, I'll tell anyone, we can debate it to the end, but like that period, 90s, early 2000s, like nobody was producing better commercials, better than Nike was. And I was like, my thought was like, somebody's got to be writing that Nike commercial. Mm-hmm. And I never thought that there was like a creative director, an art director, a designer, a photographer a set designer. I didn't realize, I didn't know all the roles behind what I was seeing. I just thought that someone had to be writing that. So I entered school as a writer. And when I got there and saw all the stuff around the building, I'm like, oh, how do you get to make that chair? Or, hey, this Olympic project, who's doing this? And like, every time I'd ask a question, these posters, how did they get here? The answer was design. So I was like, man, put me in the design program. So Mm -hmm. I switched from... I entered as a writer. Let's say I graduated in May. School started in June. And like in that kind of two weeks in between, switched from the writing program to the design program and just sort of never looked back. There's there's a couple of interesting points there that you mentioned that I really wanna wanna dive into. It's so interesting that like you sort of have this gateway into design via writing. Which I think is sometimes different, you know, I mean, we have all all types of folks on the show, but it's, I think you might be the first person I've had on the show that <laughs> that has said that their kind of gateway into this was through writing. And I mean, I, I, I sort of latch onto that personally because I wrote a lot in high school. I wrote a lot in college. Actually, when I went to, to college, I wanted to major in English. And my mom was like, nope, like you have to major in something that is going to like make some money. Like you're not going to make any money being an English major. And I still wrote in everything, you know, even though I didn't major in English, but something that we've done through revision path in the past few years is really try to champion design writing. Like we had a whole literary anthology called recognize and we wanted to try to help cultivate like that next generation of design writing or design writers, at least, because it's one thing, of course, to be a visual designer or a UX designer or something like that. But like, can you articulate your ideas in words in some way, you know, whether that's on a portfolio or a case study or an article or a book or whatever, because I really wanted to try to help change the face of who we see as a design writer. I just find it super interesting that writing has kind of been your gateway into this. Yeah. I mean, I think that at the end of the day, one, that's not actually surprising for me because I think it's not surprising for me to hear your story and understand that because to me, whether or not it's actual written word, that's what revision path is. You know, like we're storytellers and the podcast just happens to be the medium for this particular story that you're telling. But you know, if this was a hundred years ago, these would be books or these would be parables or these would be, you know, whatever. So, so 
one, it's not surprising for me to hear that from you, but I think for, for me, the, the, actually, I actually fundamentally think that the communication degree is what ultimately helped me to become successful in the design industry general, because, you know, when I started at the portfolio center, I was in class with kids that had had advertising backgrounds, had design degrees, had marketing backgrounds, had all these sort of creative elements. And I was super far behind from a technical execution standpoint. But what I began to learn over time is like, let's say my technical expertise, I eventually begin to catch up. Okay, great. And, and in a design environment, the technical expertise can actually hide a lot of flaws. Mm. Like I can make something look pretty and people will like it because it looks pretty. But at the end of the day, did that answer the clients? Did that solve the client's problem? And so when you're in a design environment, sometimes in the beginning, you can get by more because of your technical expertise, because you can make something look good. You know how to lay something out on a page, et cetera, et cetera. But you're not asking yourself, is this solving their problem? Am I doing what's right for the client or am I just doing what I think looks good? And once I began to kind of put the technical expertise with that approach, which really comes from just the pure communication, how do I reach the people? How do I reach the client? How do I talk to this audience? How do I touch them in a way? What do I want them to remember when they walk away? Same kind of question that you asked me in the beginning before we started the podcast. When people leave this, see this, interact with this, what do you want them to feel? Mm -hmm. What do you want them to say? How do you want them to engage? What do you want them to tell people about what they saw? Like most designers aren't asking that, that question. And, you know, I was because that was my background. And so that I think helped me sort of begin to separate myself once I got the technical expertise. Then on the flip side, now you can put me in a meeting. And even though I'm a junior level employee, my boss knows that I can communicate this idea effectively. When I write an email to someone, they know that it's going to come off a certain way. Like, so that allowed them to like, I got more leeway. They exposed me more from a leadership standpoint as I began to progress in my career because of my ability to communicate with the people around me. Not so much. I mean, obviously the work that I was doing had to be good, but the ability for me to talk with the team, the ability for me to rally the troops, the ability for me to talk to a manager, you know, I feel like that is fundamentally what, what made me different. And I think that that was sort of like a, a, a big linchpin to the success, particularly like in those early years. Well, let's talk about, you know, kind of those early years. So you graduated from Wake Forest. Did you go to the Portfolio Center right after you graduated? Directly. like, like Directly even, after? Like a, a month after graduation, I, I was in school again. Wow. <laughs> you didn't waste any time. No time. I was super focused. <laughs> what was the Portfolio Center like? I tell people it was like medical school for design. And I think that that was an important analogy for me because I think people, I don't think people understood the rigor of it and like how much mm. time I was putting into it. And, you know, I moved back into my parents' basement to go to design school. So like I personally was like, I felt like I was failing because I had oh. gone away to college and then I moved back home and, you know, I'm in the basement I'm starting from square one in design and I know nothing and I'm driving from Kennesaw to Atlanta every day to take classes. So when I'm at school, I'm sleeping on the couch. I would never left that building. 
And it was super, super tough and rigorous. And, you know, I think med school to me was like, it's med school for design. You know, my line brother was in medical school at the time. I'm like, it's that same, that same amount of time that you're putting into that, I'm putting into this. Our output is just different. Mm. And that was my mentality with it. Again, because I felt like I was behind, you know, so I really felt like I had to to catch up with everybody. And I really felt like I had something to prove. So I took it seriously, man. I, I didn't do any partying or any of that stuff when I was in grad school. Like, you know, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, and I went after it really, really hardcore. So I was super focused. That doesn't mean that I was the best designer when I was in school, because again, like I had a lot to learn. And from a technical standpoint, especially those early years, I would say that first three to four quarters, I couldn't get my ideas out. You know, I have an idea, but I couldn't get it out on the page the way that I wanted it to. And Mm. that took time, you know, it was like to be able to execute an idea, you know, that's a craft. And I had to put the hours in to get the muscle memory to be able to execute the things the way that I was seeing them in my mind, you know, and by the end of it, you know, I felt like I had gotten in a pretty good place. I also did a thing where, you know, I did a lot of work that was really kind of feminine in the beginning. I had a couple of pieces that one piece that was in the How International Design Annual, and those pieces were the were the, the pieces that got me the job at Hallmark. And I specifically did stuff because I thought that like if I walk into well, part of it was because of my experience undergrad at Wake. Like I was on full scholarship at Wake, academic scholarship, mm-hmm. and Wake's a small liberal arts school in the South. And I remember this very vividly. But people would assume that I had to be an athlete to be at Wake. And to be on scholarship because there was no way that as an African-American male, I could have the academic acumen to be at a university like Wake Forest without being on scholarship or without playing on some professional or playing on some team. Interesting. And so so I remember that like sort of these people think probably think X of me. So I need to make sure that whatever I do from a creative standpoint is so far beyond what their expectation of what they think that I can do mm-hmm. that it shakes them in a different way. And so I did some work that was really soft and feminine because it was like, I knew that as a man of my stature and my size and the way that I look, if I walk in a room, you expect me to do X. Well, if you see this piece and you find out that it came from me, you look at me differently. That's what happened. You know, I was at a portfolio review in New York for the art directors club and, you know, two ladies walked up and, they saw these couple pieces that I had done. They're like, wait, you did this? And I was like, yes, you know, yes, ma'am. And you're like, would you ever consider coming to Kansas City? You know, they were like, we work at Hallmark and, you know, this work is really emotional and we sell emotion. That's what a greeting card is. And, you know, would you ever move out? And, you know, I said, yeah, and, and, and sort of never looked back. And that was really the start of, of my career. Wow. That part about doing... <laughs> I really try not to to draw these parallels between like my own design journey, but like even the feminine part that you mentioned there, that's something that I did when I first started working at AT AT&T. They gave you like this design test and with the design test, they're like, there's two things that we want you to sort of design like a website for. This is like during the interview process. And one was like a motocross event and the other was a bridal shop. And I chose the bridal shop because I was like, oh, I could do that. That's not a problem. And I remember, I mean, I got the job, but I remember my manager at the time saying that, like, 
you're the only man that has chosen to do a, a bridal shop. Like, why didn't you choose the motocross? And I was like, well, I felt like I could do better on the other design. Like, it wasn't really a gendered thing in my mind, but I liked that sort of, I don't know, I guess it was sort of disarming in a way where the expectation is that you would do something like this, but instead you did something completely different and that impressed us, you know? Well, I think there's all kinds of lessons that you can learn in that though, Maurice, because like the reality is if you think about it, the job is for AT&T. So you choosing to pick to do the bridal shop means that you're willing to design something or work on something that may not even be of your own personal interest, Mm -hmm. which is valuable and still deliver something at a very high level. And most people are going to pick the thing that they're interested in and say, okay, that's great. But like, does that mean that I can only give you these types of projects where you're going to give your best effort? You know, so I like, I study culture. That, that's the way that I like, I study culture. And like, to me, it's like, uh, of course, that's why you got the job. That makes perfect sense because you're showing that like, it's not about you. You're willing to design the thing for the brand. You're willing to design the thing for the client, even if that's not your personal interest. And that's just, you know, I've just made a whole career doing that. So let's talk about, you know, kind of that early work at Hallmark. Like this was your first real legit design gig like what was it like i think every place i picked up something different hallmark you know again this is early 2000 hallmark at the time was still this is pre-social media or the very beginning of social media and people are still sending greeting cards like crazy and and you know i had mad people be like i've always dreamed of working at hallmark and it was cool. Like it taught me a lot about systems and a lot about like process. And, you know, they had things and systems and process in place that were way ahead of his time. And I think that's the thing that I got the most out of it. It was a very corporate environment and it was a place that like nobody ever left. And so on the flip side, you know, now as a parent with kids, I can understand the appeal of it because of the security, because it was a family company, et cetera. But as a young kid coming out of school with like something to prove, I didn't like the idea that I could be there for eight years and still be a baby because someone is having a 25th, 30th, 40th, 50th anniversary. And, you know, you just got to pay your dues, but your dues could be 10, 12 years before anyone actually really pays attention to you. You know, I was hungry, man. So I spent about a year and a half at Hallmark. And it was a great experience from that first job because they are very nurturing and do a lot to help develop their young talent, which is what I needed. But from a career standpoint, me wanting to chase things and me wanting to do stuff that was bigger and take more risks and be given more opportunities, that was never going to happen, you know, one year out of school at Hallmark, just because it's just because of the nature of the, the, t- the way the company was. So that was about a year and a half at Hallmark. And then I went to Abercrombie and that's when sort of the floodgates opened because Abercrombie was going to let me do whatever I wanted as long as I could prove it. Yeah. And I mean, you've worked, you know, since then with a lot of super well-known retail brands, you know, mentioned Hallmark, Abercrombie and Fitch, but also Bath and Body Works, Kohl's, Carter's. Like when you look back at that time collectively, which it looks like it was roughly like about a 10 year period. That's a good chunk of a career. Like, what do you remember the most? What stands out about that time? Man, it's a blur. I think 
it's less about the time. It's more just like, you know, again, I'm a storyteller, so I'm going to give you an analogy. But like my grandfather was a carpenter and he couldn't read, but he could build a house or he had like an eighth grade education, eighth grade reading level, but he could build a house from scratch. And to me, all those places along the way were like me mastering a different tool in my carpentry belt. So like Hallmark was great for process. Abercrombie was great from branding. Like I got to work directly with the CEO. Like nobody, you know, like at the Mm. time, Abercrombie was the biggest brand in the world. And like that experience of working directly with him and working on those teams and doing what we were doing, like that was an amazing experience. Marketing, Bath and Body Works, limited brands, that time period, nobody was doing it better. Kohl's, I got, I left and I, I left Bath and Body Works and Kohl's specifically took a job just doing packaging. So I managed packaging for 16 brands at Kohl's. And then Carter's came back to Atlanta to actually relaunch the Oshkosh Bagosh brand. So mm. that was a brand that like I wore and grew up with in the 80s, having a mom that was in retail. And then I made my way over to the Hawks and the Hawks was like where I got to put it all together. So oh. it was like I had done all these things and, you know, you're amassing all these different tools and then the hawks is like okay cool i can build a house now you know and then the agency was like okay cool i know how to build a house for them but like can i build my own house and that's to me what the agency really was let's talk about the hawks i mean you were you're the vp creative director there for a good while like was it a big difference working in sports over retail yes and no i think There were some things that are different just because like the NBA schedule is different. And when you're in season, that was one of the things that was really hard to get used to. I think I had always worked crazy hours because of retail and I was used to that. Like, you know, I told you before, the summer is always my busy time. It was a point when I was at Bath and Body Works where like my wife and kids would go away for a month because I knew I wasn't going to be coming home from work. So it's like, Mm. don't worry about me coming home late. Like you go hang out with your mom, kids can play with their grandparents, et cetera. I'm working. And so I was already always used to the long hours, but the NBA season when you're in season is brutal. And like, you know, you're getting up, you're working your nine to five and then your nine to five is done. You hang out at the office for two hours. Then you walk over to the arena and the game starts at seven or the game starts at eight. You know, and then you're working a whole other shift, but you're making sure everything's taken care of with the fans. And mm-hmm. it's just a different type of environment. Then if you make the playoffs, then you're flipping graphics just based off of, okay, all these if win scenarios. If the team wins on Monday, then we play again on Wednesday. If the team loses on, if the opponent wins, like it's just all these scenarios that the NBA lays out based off of what your team is doing and based off what the other team is doing. And you have to be ready in all those different scenarios. And so it just requires you to be on your game at the, the highest level. And it's super, super intense, but it's insanely rewarding and really fun. You know, it's my hometown team. So to work as a creative director for my hometown team, that's like the dream of all dreams. So I had a great experience. It was, it was fun. It was really hard. It was really challenging, but it also allowed me to see kind of what, what I could do, which more than anything, I would say with the Hawks, I always felt like, or prior to the Hawks, I had always worked in these corporate environments. And I felt like in some way I was always sort of 
compromising some aspect of what I could do or who I was in those corporate environments. When I got to the Hawks, it was like I could be free. Mm -hmm. And it's like they're not going to judge me based off of what my hair looks like. They're not going to if I want to wear this outfit to work, it's cool. It was just free and like and they allowed me or they gave me the freedom to push the creativity as far as I could take it. And I think in some instances, some of the stuff that we did might have even surprised myself. I was like, oh, snap, this is what this looks like. Okay, cool. And yeah, so it was super rewarding, but very, very intense. I mean, we've had a couple of folks here on the show who have done or they do like sports design or, or something like that. Like we've had Britt Davis on the show. I know we've had a couple of others, but she mainly comes to mind because I think she might have yeah. been the first one I've had. But yeah, I feel like that whole world is... Well, I well, first of all, I know that that whole world is really fast paced. I did a short stint at the Georgia World Congress Center, and this is back when the Georgia Dome was still an actual building. But I did a short stint from 2005 to 2006 doing some like marketing work with the Falcons. So like I know what you mean about that kind of turnaround and and having to get stuff out. And yeah, you have your nine to five, but then if it's a game that night, then, you know, it, it sort of extends over into the evening. So that's a rough schedule though. But I mean, it is, even when I, when I think back during that time, it is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a lot of work, obviously, but just that whole feeling because of the camaraderie of the team, not just the team you work with, but like the sports team as well. It's a great thing to get swept up in. Yeah, it's awesome. I think some of the things that are actually really cool about it is let's say the team has a deep playoff run and, you know, we make a really cool shirt that we give out as a giveaway. The next day after the game, you walk around, it's like everyone in the city is wearing your shirt. You're like, mm -hmm. oh, this is cool. And I got a sense of that when I was at Abercrombie, where it's like I could go to any city and, you know, see someone wearing a graphic that I had made for Hollister or whatever. But it's just different when it's like, this is your city, you know, like you're represent, like you're the representation of the city. And they're wearing your graphics and they don't even know what came from you. So to me, like that, that was a cool thing. And, you know, shout out to Britt Davis. Like she's a beast. Like, yeah, uh, she's one of the people I've never had the opportunity to work with her directly. But when you're in the industry, you know who's who and you know who's like really good at what they're doing. And, and she's just one of those people that, you know, I've always had my eye on and just have a high, high respect for for what she does and, you know, what she's able to bring to the table. And she's a monster. Yeah. And now you you run your own agency, you know, like yeah, you, you were doing what you're doing at the Hawks and now you're doing your own thing. Yeah. And I think that's been the part that's been kind of cool and, and unexpected. But yes, it's, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> kind of a, a through line I think we've had on the show probably for the past roughly two years now folks know this i've been always kind of asking folks about their thoughts with like web3 and the metaverse and ai and all this sort of stuff uh and, and we talked about this a little bit before recording but like within the past roughly nine months or so it feels like there's been this huge explosion of ai not only coming to sort of the mainstream in terms of being included in certain software products but also a lot of talk about the ethics behind using it, whether that's for images, videos, text, et cetera. Like, what is your opinion on the use of AI and, and machine learning as it relates to the work that you do? I'm aware of it. I think that, like, it's interesting to me just watching sort of the reaction of people to it. 
but I'm not necessarily intimidated by it or necessarily afraid of it. We don't actively use it or not that I don't personally actively use it, but it doesn't strike fear in me. I'm not afraid of it. I, I understand it. I think it's just sort of the natural evolution, but I'm also a little bit older in the game. Like I remember, you know, there was a moment when every photographer was freaking out because they couldn't use film anymore, you know? <laughs> and like people don't, people think that that's crazy now, but like, you know, when I was shooting my portfolio, everything was on actual film. And then everyone had that make that switch to like a digital camera. And there was this, well, I don't know, the image quality is not going to be great, blah, 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 blah. And it's like over time, everything catches up. I think a lot of the like chat GPT and all this sort of stuff that kind of is going on right now, I kind of look at it as like a fad diet kind of thing. Like mm. everybody wants to get rich quick. Everybody wants to find something that's going to make things easier, faster, quicker, blah, 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 and get the same great results as the person that put in all this work. So that's what makes this so appealing is like, wait, I don't have to spend all this time writing this novel anymore. I can do it in five minutes. Right. You're like, okay, cool. But you lose all the nuance of that process. And so, so to me, it's like, I understand it. I get it, but I'm not really super caught up in it. And, and for the record, it's been here for way longer than we actually are giving it credit for it's like when you say hey siri like what do you think that is <laughs> you know like siri's been learning how you talk and how you enunciate and how you pronounce and hear you like so there to me i think there's just it's been around longer it's just that someone's done a really good job of packaging it up and making it digestible and i think that you know there's a whole group of, of people where it's just like oh cool i can i can do this faster and it's like okay cool but like there's what i do yeah, we can make some steps quicker, but it's like, I'm not taking any of the steps out. I'm not short circuiting because the product's not going to be as good. Right. Uh, so, and then the other thing that I think is actually really interesting is like, I saw a meme the other day, which I thought was brilliant in the sense that it was just like chat GPT is only as good as what you put into it. And mm -hmm. they were like, if you own a design firm, you have nothing to worry about because we all know clients aren't the best at giving direction, <laughs> you know, very so true. Very so if true. you're relying, like if you're worried that your client is going to replace you, it's like you should eliminate that fear because if left to their own devices, what they put into it, that's not what they really want. Right. <laughs> and that's so much what we do is we're asking the same question five different ways to get to the heart of like, what do you actually really want? What are you actually really trying to say? So until that happens, then, I think that we're good. So I'm not, I'm not really stressing it that much. <laughs> How would you say your creative style has evolved over the years? I don't know. I think it's funny because if you would have asked me that question a couple years ago, I would have been very much, again, I told you before, like designs, not art, but I think where it gets dicey is even though ultimately, you know, what we do is for the client, we now are beginning to sort of make a name for ourselves and what we do. And so now people are coming to us for the thing that we do. And you're like, Ooh, this is different. So I think from a style standpoint, I don't really like to get caught up in that. I love that. Like we could do something for a podcasting women owned company. And it looks very different than something that we do for a civil engineering firm. But I think just the approach is like, you know, everything that we do kind of has a little bit of an edge to it. I think we're a lot more confident now than we were 
four or five years ago when I started the company. And I think that we try to have a little bit more clarity. Like I, I think of everything that I do, I think leans on my experience from Abercrombie and Bath and Body Works in the sense that like I'm trying to make the most impactful visual with the clearest message in the fewest words possible. Like I'm thinking about everything like a window display, even though window displays aren't really the thing that they used to be. But like I'm a kid that grew up in retail. My mom was a store manager. So it's like, how do I have the most impact with the least words and the most powerful visual possible? Mm. And how that actual looks stylistically, that can change quite a bit. But the approach, I think, is what's consistent. What keeps you motivated and inspired like to continue this work? I, I get the feeling that throughout your career, especially you know, going from retail to sports and working at the high level that you have and now running your agency, there's probably been some periods in there of like burnout and, and low motivation, et cetera. What keeps you going? Yes, there's been quite a few of those moments. At this point, I mean, like, I'm not supposed to be here, man. <laughs> like, you know, I'm a kid from the country who's a creative director and owns a design agency, but can't draw. You know what I mean? Like, to me, I think just every opportunity, the fact that someone is going to pay me to be creative, they're going to pay me for ideas. Like, that's crazy to me. And so I feel super fortunate to be able to do it. And I don't take that for granted. And then I also know, like, I do a lot of work talking to kids and trying to expose them to this. And it's like every kid that I talk to, once they find out what we do and see what we do, it's like all those kids. I was like, you, every one of those kids, like they want my job. There's people who will be listening to this podcast who are like, you know, you're always dreaming of what the next thing is. So, you know, hopefully there's someone who's listening to this right now. Like, hey, I want to be where Tan is at. You know, I want to have my own agency one day. I want to work with these kind of clients one day. So that's not lost on me at all. And so to me, and I think it's part of that competitive nature, it's like I don't ever want to rest on my laurels. I'm fortunate to be where I'm at, but I know the next generation's coming. And so, you know, we always got to be on our A game and, and not take it for granted. And I think, you know, that's just the approach that, that we have for everything. What advice would you give to somebody, like you said, they're listening to your story, they're they're hearing where you've came from to where you are now, like they want to follow in your footsteps. What advice would you give to them, like if they want to start their own agency or, or anything like that? Yeah, man, the path isn't linear. That's my big thing. The path isn't linear. You know, I wanted to have an agency and it took me almost 20 years to do it. And so I think when you're in this sort of social media age, when you're looking at people's Instagram or whatever, you're only seeing the highlights. You're not seeing the journey. You're not seeing the process. No one's putting the low moments on there. No one's putting all the times that someone said no to them, the rejection, the blah, blah, blah. Like there's a ton of brands that told me no when I was interviewing or looking for jobs. There's a ton of clients that passed on us or didn't give us opportunities. And so for me, it's just like the path isn't linear. You know, I give it an analogy of if I say, Maurice, we're trying to get from Atlanta to L.A., right? And I'm like, all right, here's the goal. We're going to get from Atlanta to L.A. Maurice, mm-hmm. how you going to get how you get into L.A.? Oh, you're asking me how would I get? I'm asking, yeah, how <laughs> okay. you going to get to L.A. from Atlanta? From Atlanta? I'd take yeah. a flight direct. And so that flight direct is going to take you about how much time? I mean, probably four to five hours, I think. All right, so four to five hours, right? But I never told you. 
I never said I gave you a time limit, right? I never said we had to be in LA in four hours or five hours or six hours or a day or whatever. I just said, we're just trying to get from Atlanta to LA. Mm-hmm. So like you might take that direct flight. Well, for me, I road tripped it. Mm. You know what I mean? So I'm like, oh, spring break. Like, let's drive down to Florida. Oh, taste of Chicago. Oh, never seen the Grand Canyon before. Oh, Christmas in New York. That's dope. Let me go see what those lights are about. Like, ooh, like just that journey of, oh, let's drive up to Seattle and drive down the coast to L.A., right? So we'll both end up getting there, but who's going to have better stories? Right. And I think that to me is fundamentally, I think that's sort of the approach to everything is like we're so caught up in the destination that like we don't appreciate the journey of actually getting there. To me, you know, for any of these younger generation, it's like, yeah, it's great to know where you want to be, but be open to getting there a different way than what you expected. And when you're open to to doing that, then like all kinds of opportunities present themselves that you never, that may put you in positions that you never even imagined or put you in rooms that you never even imagined, you know, and when you get there, you'll appreciate it a whole lot more. At this stage of your career, do you have like a, a dream project or something that you'd love to do? I don't know. I don't. I think to me, the the dream project is whatever the next project is. And from a personal standpoint, if I never design again, if I never produce another piece of whatever, my career has far surpassed what I wanted to be when I was that kid out of gra- out of school starting off in this industry 20 years ago. So I'm good. To me, it's less about the work and more about doing things like this that inspire the next generation, talk to kids, bring the next group along. That's the thing that I think is the most important. The work will be the work. And, you know, whatever comes our way, we'll take it and we'll do the best job possible. But I also, I think part of me too, And just getting older and having kids is just appreciate the things that you have and not the things that you don't have. Mm -hmm. So I'm appreciative of the clients that we've had and the people that have taken the risk on us. And I'm not really worried about the ones that haven't come yet, because if we do what we're supposed to do and we do it in the right way and we keep our head down and whatever, you know, those people will come. So to me that I don't really my mind doesn't process it in that way. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what do you want that next kind of chapter of your of your life, of your career? What do you want that to look like? To me, the whole part of of this with the agency is one. I just thought when I started off, I was like, or when I had the dream of like, I want to have my own agency. I never imagined like how many people that would be. I never imagined like what that looked like from a revenue standpoint or how many years we would be in business or any of that stuff. So that to me is less of, again, my mind doesn't process things in that way because that's kind of what people are asking typically when they ask that and and not to say that you are, but I think the thing that, that I actually think about more than anything is if you think about it, the time when I was kind of coming up, there were certain cities that everyone wanted to move to, or everyone had to work in, or everyone thought that their favorite firm came out of. And Atlanta was never on that list. You know, like I would talk to a bunch of people and no one ever like mentioned all the firms that were in Atlanta. No one ever talked about creative coming out of Atlanta. 
no one ever mentioned things in that way. And so to me, I think what my goal would be over the course of whatever time that we're doing this is that when you start talking about the best branding firms and the business, you're checking for us the same way that you're checking for the other firms in the other cities. And I think that if we do our job and we get to that point, then to me, that's when like the mission will be accomplished because it's just crazy to me with all the music, all the entertainment, all the culture, all the creative that comes out of the city, like it's just not as recognized or at least when I started, it wasn't as recognized as to me as it should have been. And, and we just want to be, you know, one of those top agencies and top firms that are in the city that really begin to put this pace on the map from a branding design creative standpoint. Do you think that perception is changing? I think that the perception is evolving for sure, just because of the growth of the city. But I think the city has its own allure. I think from a creative standpoint, again, I don't know, because, you know, obviously I'm older in my, my career now, but I want the younger people to be looking at the firms here. And, you know, I want us to be on that list. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully it's changing. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, then I'd love for that to be changing. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, David, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work, about the agency? Where can they find that online? Yeah. So uh, agency website is tantrumagency.com. You can check us out on Instagram, Tantrum Agency. If you want to follow me personally on the journey of building the agency, it's tantrum underscore ATL. Yeah. I think, you know, Instagram, LinkedIn are the best places to kind of keep up to date with what we have going on. And, you know, we're in the process of updating our website now. So keep your eye out for the the new unveil for that over the next couple of months. All right. Sounds good. David Tan, I want to thank you so, so much for for coming on the show. I didn't mention this when we started because I wanted to say it before the end. But when I was first putting Revision Path together a decade ago, I had like a wish list of people that I wanted to have on the show. You were on that list. I didn't reach out then because I was like, I'm just starting this off. And I mean, I had my own studio at the time too. And I think I started Revision Path right at my five-year mark of doing my studio. And I was like, oh, you know, I I had an idea of people I wanted to reach out to. But it was, I think, you know, sort of to your point about what it was like in Atlanta in terms of people knowing about design, I would mention the show to folks here and it would just sort of get like these strange looks (laughs) and stuff like that. But I say all of that to say, you know, one, I'm glad to have you on the show now, but two, also just to hear your story and, and to realize just kind of how much we sort of have in common. Like I, I too am from the country and did a lot of writing and that was kind of my pathway to design. I hope that people get a sense of just how much, I guess skin in the game is probably not the best term, but like you've put in the work. You have more than put in the work over, you know, the past 20 years of your career. And you deserve to reap all of the success that you're getting now. Again, congratulations on your Entrepreneur of the Year award. I'm really excited to see what you do next. And I'm really glad that there are are Black creatives like you that are helping to put Atlanta on that design map. So thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. But before we wrap, though, let me also just be clear you have been doing this for so long and at such a high level. And I think that it's actually ironic that you didn't reach out to me because I've been watching you for years and it's like, man, 
Like, what am I not doing right? Maurice hasn't called. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you this more because I think that it's important for people to understand and know that sometimes like your perception and like this notion of reality is skewed just based off of where you are. And like the grass is always greener. So it's like, I'm seeing all these amazing people or hearing about all these amazing people or having friends who've been on the show. And I'm like, also like, man, what am I not doing right? And when you actually reached out to me, I was like, oh man, there's like a sense of like, I made it. You know what I mean? And so even with all that I've done in my career, to me, being on here with you and talking with you and having this time is a really, really, really big deal. And I don't think that you should take what you're doing lightly. And you should know that like your work is, is super appreciated. And, you know, you're making a, a huge impact in the industry. And so I think the feeling is 100% mutual. As much as you may have been watching my career, I've been definitely keeping track of you. So you know, I'm truly, truly, truly honored to be here and, and very appreciative that you reached out. Wow. Thank you. I, I, I don't know what to say. Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate that, man. Thank you. Absolutely, man. Big, big thanks to David Tan. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about David and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, please let us know. We're on Instagram and Twitter to search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify, on Amazon Music. You could leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Or you can leave us a voicemail message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.